Howdy, folks. This is the Words of Truth from the Scriptures podcast. I am Brian Yeager. I'm glad that you're listening in to this podcast. I think you will find it no matter where you're coming from on your spiritual journey to be a very encouraging uh, lesson, one that will uh, relieve some anxiety that you might have in regard to the Judgment Day, in particular because the world is full of all kinds of confusion when it comes to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how there is not partiality with God. And by partiality, I'm, I'm looking at that English word uh, mean, meaning unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another, or in other words, favor. There's no favoritism. There's no unfair bias where God favors one thing or a person above another. Now, let me tell you, this subject is so very important. If people were to understand this subject matter, I'm convinced that a lot of false doctrines uh, would not exist. For example, think about the application of this when people talk about the election. You know, when when you're out there and you're listening to uh, some of the, the false religions uh, that exist in our day, there are people that will talk about the elect, and they will say that God has predetermined before the foundation of the world um, with nothing you can do about it. You, you have no control over this at all. Uh, Calvinism is known for this. That, that would be like the Presbyterian Church. Uh, the many different factions of the Baptist church, uh, the Lutheran church, and a lot of these community churches. And, you know, when you're driving down the road and you see some sign that may have some long, confusing, like community church word, wording, a lot of times those, those are Calvinistically related uh, churches. And, and they will essentially say, you have no control. God has picked a certain amount of people. They're the saved and you have no hope. The Jehovah's Witness, like unto Calvinism, very similar uh, in the mentality on this related subject matter, where they will say only 144,000 people are saved because they twist Revelation chapter 7 and 14 uh, and don't understand the highly figurative language uh, contained therein. And the idea is the election. And, and people will read scriptures, you know, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, uh, Paul, Savanus, and Timothy writing to the saints in Thessalonica saying, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Well, what's that mean? And, and people will sometimes look at the Greek word, ekologē, if that is how you pronounce it. I'm not sure. I'm not a Greek scholar. Just using a dictionary. Uh, means divine selection, abstractly or concretely chosen or election. So people will just look at the definition of that word and they'll think, well, God has a pre-selected group of people and no one else out of that pre-selected group of people could ever be his people. There's nothing you can do about it. But they don't take the time to actually study who are the people in Thessalonica. How did they come to be God's among God's elect? Well, in Acts 17, when uh, you start at the beginning of the chapter, when they had passed through Amphalus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. 
Paul, as his manner was, went unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, risen again from the dead, and that is Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude and the chief women, not a few, but the Jews which believe not. You see, all of that is free will, right? Some chose to believe, some chose to believe not. Well, those that chose to believe not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, gathered a company, and set a city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And if you keep reading, you know, they, they chased Paul out of Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, etc. But there were people in Thessalonica that chose to believe. When you continue to read, like if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4 that we already talked about, guess what the next two verses say? In verse 5 and 6, it says, For our gospel came not unto you in the word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and much assurance. And you know what manner of man we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word with much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. They received the word. And how were they called? 2 Thessalonians 2.14, same congregation, second letter, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, no, they, they weren't pre-selected to the degree wherein uh, God said, they're going to be my people no matter what, that's it. No, nope, the gospel had to be preached there. They had to believe, they had to obey. Uh, and, and, catch this, they had to continue in obedience. Same letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, same group of people. It says, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that is, you've received how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in the sanctification and honor, possess his body, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because the Lord is the vendor of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified, for God hath not called us unto uncleanliness, but unto holiness. How did he call us? Remember how he called them? Remember 2 Thessalonians 2.14, by the gospel? Not, not God said, you know what? You, 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 and you, you're my people, and you, and you, and you are not. Nothing you can do about it. No. They believed and were expected to continue to obey the commandments given to them through the apostles to please God. So there are people out there that, that they mistake the word elect or election, and they run with this whole doctrine, and they, they're basically telling people, you have absolutely no control over whether or not you go to heaven. Well, that's not the case. In fact, um, I'm persuaded that it's the most retarded doctrine I've ever heard of because nothing would matter. I don't even know why uh, those people begin to, to think this way. I've talked to quite a few over the last 30-some years. I've talked to quite a few people that believe uh, Calvinism and I'm always shocked because some of them seem to be reasonable. And, and yet, they, they, they will talk about Adam and Eve, and they'll just immediately ignore that there was a choice made. And they'll talk about the book of Genesis, but 
they'll say, well, you're depraved. God chose you. So it's like God made you broken. And God made you in a way that you can't do right. And then God's going to take from among all the people that can't even do right, and he's going to pick some of them to be saved, and the rest, tough luck. You're out there. And they'll, and they'll say, well, you have no, no part in this uh, matter. To say that you're saved by works is heresy. You can't be... They like to use the word justified. And they'll say it's a legal term. You, you can't be justified uh, by works. And, and it's heresy to say that you can. So James would be a heretic because James said in James 2.24, you see thou by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, they'll try to explain that text away. That's works before men, yet the same context says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? James 2.21. There was no man witnessing what Abraham did with Isaac. And they'll play games with the context just like they do with passages like 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 or Ephesians chapter 1 and other things. So these doctrines are out there. But listen, it's not just that doctrine that convinces people that there's partiality with God. There's also the fact that people project onto God what they see among men. And, and it's sad because... Aside from the false doctrines where scriptures are twisted, I mean, we could go on and on and on for hours on that. There are those people that will look and say, look at the behaviors of men. There's nothing that's fair. And they just throw hope completely out the window and they don't pursue God. You know, you're, you're told uh, both Old and the New Testament to seek the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 6, Matthew 7, verse 7, among other passages. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 6 is a great passage that talks about faith and teaches mankind to seek after the Lord. It says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so people get discouraged. Well, yeah, there is partiality among men. In fact, unfortunately, this even happens among people that profess to be Christians. For example, in James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, My brethren... Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons? Well, why is he saying that? He's saying that because as the context continues, for if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he had promised them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you respect persons, ye commit sin." and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiced against judgment. So listen, yes, 
Like here in James 2, you do see respect of persons among men. But don't project that unto God. God is not likened unto man. In Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He has said, and shall he not do it? Or he has spoken it, shall he not make it good? And Isaiah 55 brought, brought up verse 6 earlier. But if you look through verse 9, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And, and, and Hosea 14.9. Who is wise and shall understand these things? Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but transgressors shall fall therein. God is not likened unto man. So when you see things among men, yes, you're going to see partiality. You're going to see people that have an unfair bias in favor of one thing or another. Unfortunately, again, like in James 2, 1 through 13, you'll see that among people that profess to be Christians. That does not mean that that comes from God. In fact, when we look at the way our Lord uh, acts and reacts, it's quite different than the way man commonly does. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 7, um, in, in the first century when Jesus was on earth, um, among the Jews, there, there were two notable sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, the Pharisees were more, more, a more strict uh, sect. They were known as being the stricter, the law keepers, uh, etc. When Paul, the apostle, uh, went, at the time when he was called Saul, he was uh, of the group that called themselves uh, the Pharisees, and this was the most straight sect. Uh, so Jesus in Luke 7, um, 36 through 50, one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself saying, This man... If a real prophet would have, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. So here, here's the Pharisee's mindset. What does Jesus have anything to do with this woman? She's a sinner. So Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. Jesus says, There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose he to whom he forgave most. And he said to him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since I... The time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. 
And they that sat at meat began and say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. You see, the way Jesus, the way our Lord, the way the Father, whom Jesus came doing the will of, thinks is differently than the way man thinks. Man looks at, at this woman uh, and in hypocrisy, judging according to outward appearance, doesn't consider a lost soul that will be converted. No. Man sees a horrible sinner and, ooh, stay away from me. Jesus shows us he did not esteem this Pharisee and the way man ordinarily would, the way that you see in James chapter 2. In Luke 9, uh, unfortunately, uh, among the disciples, among the apostles, in verse 46, there was a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest? How sad when there is this mentality among the apostles, right? Well, if, if you're studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that the apostles were severely lacking uh, in their faith and faithfulness uh, to our Lord all the way up, e even prior to His ascension into heaven. If you, you go and you read Matthew 28, 16, uh, Mark 16, 14, there was still unbelief. Read Thomas. People know Thomas is doubting Thomas. He was one of the apostles. So in this text, verse 47 and 48, Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart took a child and set him by him and said to them, Whosoever shall receive this child of my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. See, that's not the way man thinks, is it? The least is the greatest. Well, that's the way our Lord thinks. It's not the most wealthy. It's not the most talented. It's not somebody who looks better than somebody else. It's the other way around. Our Lord doesn't regard persons. He doesn't care that this man is a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a thief. There are lost souls that need to be saved. Isn't that wonderful? Clarity on this matter. The disciples were told to go and preach the gospel to all the world. Mark 16, 15, and 16. However, even among them, there was a misunderstanding of what the world meant. Or every nation, Matthew 28, 19. They thought, selectively... This is just about the Jews. I want to talk about that before we, we end this podcast, That uh, why that was the thinking. We'll, we'll get to that here momentarily. But when you are studying the second book of uh, written to Theophilus, the second letter to Theophilus, and uh, that's, that's what the book of Acts is. Luke is the first letter to Theophilus. Acts is the second letter to Theophilus. They're narrative accounts of the history of the work of the Lord and the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, the preaching of the gospel is to the Jews, or at least to people of the nation of Israel, which the Samaritans uh, were, were part of Israel when you look back in Old Testament history. 
When it came to Acts 10 and Peter was told to go and preach to a Gentile, even though Peter, out of his own mouth, said that the promise was to those that are far off, not just the Jews, but those that are far off, Acts 2.39, when you go and read Ephesians 2.11-17, the far off are the Gentiles. Likely, if you're listening to this podcast, that's you and I. We ought to be thankful for that. We're Gentiles. We're, we're not of the nation of Israel. Uh, Peter thought, no, I'm not going to go with unclean thing. God had to convince him through a vision if you read all of Acts chapter 10. Well, after Peter gets it and he goes and he begins speaking to Cornelius and, and his household, in Acts 10, 34 and 35, Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Do, do you catch that? These, these are wonderful passages. God is no respecter of persons in every nation. doesn't matter poor, rich, United States, third world country. He that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Obviously, that's a simplification. But it shows you have control over your eternal destiny. God has given you an equal opportunity as he has all mankind to obey him and be saved. He is an impartial judge. In 1 Peter 1.17, if you call on the Father, who without respect of person judged according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. If you go to a job interview today and you have 30 years experience in a field, and you are very good at your job, but you do not have a college degree. There are some companies that will hire somebody who has a piece of paper. Even though you will do the job much better, they have respect to that piece of paper, to the college degree. If you go to an interview, maybe you uh, wore the wrong color dress shirt, and somebody came in with power apparel, and their appearance just looked slightly sharper than yours. And because someone made a judgment according to appearance, they got the job and not you. We, we experience things like this in every area of our life. However, you will not experience that with our Lord. Can you take comfort in that? That, that he judges without respect of persons. Your work. Your place among men in this world is not going to get you a pass nor a stricter view of judgment. In Colossians chapter 3, servants, meaning slaves, verse 22 through 25 says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye servants have men's pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong that she hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Slave or master, you're judged according to what you've done. 
We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ in the end. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That every member may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. According to what you have done. Not according to your social status. Not according to your earthly carnal education. Not according to your financial status. Not according to how much money you have in the bank. Not according to any of those things. In Matthew 16, 27, each of us is going to answer for our own conduct. Notice, it says, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. The judgment scene that's set up. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 23, 37, through Matthew chapter 24 and verse 34, um, Jesus is teaching about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in A.D. 70. And then He transitions and Matthew 24, 35, he says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angel of heaven, but my Father only. Uh, Matthew 23, 37 through 24, 34. And 24, 34 says the things that were written or uh, said before then were going to happen in that generation. That's a first century event. Again, historically, you can know that that's AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, but from Matthew 24, 35 through Matthew 25, 46, Jesus is, is teaching about the judgment. In that context, in Matthew 25, 31, says, beginning, uh, let, let me turn there real quick. I'm going to read more than, I was just going to quote a couple of, of verses out of this, but I, I want to read it uh, to you. Matthew 25, 31, beginning, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divided the sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer, saying, Lord, when saw with thee a hungered, or fed thee, or thirsty, or gave thee drink? When saw with thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw with thee sick, or in prison, and came to thee, and the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I send you, insomuch as you have done it unto the least of one of these my brethren. You know, the definition of my brethren for Jesus is those that do the will of, of the Father. Matthew 12, 46-50, just a little side note. He says, You have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the left, Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, ye accursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me on, and na naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, you visited me not. And by the way, if you just do a little word study on visit, it means to look after. It doesn't mean go to a prison and sit down and talk to somebody. It's like Epaphroditus did for the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 25-30. It's to care for somebody, okay? Not just sometimes people think of the word visit. And a lot of false doctrines taught in churches, like we have a visitation ministry, where by that they mean they go have a cup of coffee with somebody. That's not what visit means in the Scriptures, here or in James 1, 27. Side note uh, apart, in Matthew 25, 44, then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw thee hunger or thirst or naked, or stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall I answer, saying to them, I say, and much as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away in everlasting punishment, the righteous uh, into life 
eternal. When you read that, you understand that you are in control of your destiny for eternity based upon what you do, based upon your works, good or evil. And lest anybody confuse you by twisting scriptures or by uh, projecting onto God man's judgment, John 5, 28 and 29, we talked about this in, in Sunday's podcast, then marvel not at this, the hour is coming in which they that are in the grave shall hear his voice, speaking of Jesus, and shall come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. That's how God's judgment is. Whether you do good or evil, not who you are or whose you are in the framework of this world, but what you do. That judgment is a righteous judgment. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching in Athens on Mars Hill. And as he comes near the end of what he says in Acts 17, 31, says, because he hath appointed a day. And, and you know what? Um, be, before verse 31, it, it's important to include verse 30. Kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here. So in verse 30, the times of this ignorance, speaking of times past where... Uh, People didn't understand God. This is God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Then verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day. That's consistent with Matthew 25. Uh, it's consistent with Matthew 24, 35, and 36. He hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Unto all. Assurance unto all. God's a fair judge. Paul, when he was near the end of his physical life, and he's writing Timothy the evangelist, he says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but all them that love him at his appearing. That, that is wonderful. Wonderful. And God's been consistent in this. Even when you go back and you look under the law of Moses, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, for example, verses 12 through 20, says, And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. Only the Lord hath delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them. Even you above all people, as it is this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and love the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. Much like you read in the New Testament. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. You keep reading, those are those that obey him are those that he makes his abode with. For, uh, John 14, 21 and following. God's consistent. 
Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 3, 10, and 11, Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Jeremiah 32, 19, great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. You understand those scriptures? Both old and new, God judged according to what man did. That's wonderful. There's no partiality in that. That gives you control. God says, I want you to love me. I want you to choose me. I want you to seek me. We've proven that with Scripture, Hebrews 11 and 6, among others. That's his desire. We'll put more scriptures with that here just in a little bit when we talk about God being fair and how he doesn't want you to perish. But man obstructs that. Man gets in the way with his own thinking. We allow everything we see and hear in the world, not we, I'm not indicting myself or others, but just mankind in general seems to think that this kind of judgment can't exist because in our world we don't see it. Folks, God is not of the world. The world is evil. It's wicked. 1 John 5, 19. God is just. He's fair. He's going to look at what you do and do not do. And he gives you the choice, the freedom. And when you stand before Christ in the judgment day, you're going to answer because of what you chose to do or not to do. It, it really is that simple. I want you to think about how that affects everything. It affects everything. It affects how people look at salvation. It even affects how people look at, at prayer. You know, pe people will, will pray for things uh, from time to time. Uh, they'll pray, Lord, save this person. Well, if God saved someone because you prayed for them, what about the people that he didn't save? That would make him partial. Hmm. Think about how it affects everything. He's not partial. He doesn't give or carry an unfair bias. He doesn't favor one above another. Even when, I want you to hear this point, because this is a great Bible study point. Even when God cho chose Israel and set them apart from other nations, it was for a reason that shows his impartiality. Follow me here. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning verse 1, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee, speaking to Israel, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land where thou go to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, that thy daughter shall not be given unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall utterly destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people in the Lord thy God. 
Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. That's key. That's key. We're going to, we're going to put this into application here in a moment. Hath brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you out of the house of the bondman, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant, again, key, covenant to who? The fathers. And mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to the thousand generations. Keeps his covenant to the fathers, keeps his covenant to the obedient. Who was that to benefit? Who The fact that God keeping his promises to the fathers... Who does that benefit? Genesis 12, 3, talking to Abraham. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 22, 18, context where uh, Abraham offers Isaac. And thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. You hear that? Even when God set apart Israel until... John came and Jesus came and the new covenant came into existence. He wanted Israel to be separate from all the nations of the earth. Of course, they didn't obey that. If you read the Old Testament, you see that clearly. But he gave them the free will. He told them his will. They chose not to follow it. And time after time after time, they were punished from it. Well, that promise was kept by God. And because of that, all people, all nations of the earth blessed Let's put scriptures to that. Galatians 3, 8, 9. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faith for Abraham. Verse 16, same chapter. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So what the promise was about was ultimately bringing Christ and the world. So how's that translate into a blessing upon all? Verse 26 through 29 of Galatians 3. For you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor free, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you're Abraham's seeds and heir according to the promise. Hmm. Isn't that wonderful how that comes together? In Acts 15, when there was a problem in Antioch, and the apostles and the brethren in Jerusalem are discussing it, verse 7 through 9, when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth shall hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, 12 and 13, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That separation that God made was for intended purpose. To keep the promise unto the fathers, to keep the bloodline pure, that Jesus would come into this world to bring salvation unto all. That everybody would have equal opportunity to hear, believe, and obey. Even when the law was in place, you know, sometimes people think, so what, what did God just forget about the Gentiles? No, they were a law unto themselves. Just like 
prior to Exodus chapter 20 when Moses began to give the law. Just like that, Gentiles continued. They, they weren't under the law of Moses, but they continued the law unto themselves. In Romans chapter 2, this is spelled out. Uh, verses 9 through 16, just to grab a little bit of context, says, Tribulation anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Notice, for there is no respect of persons with God. For as many have sinned without law, shall also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law, shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law shall be judged by the... For not the hearers of the law... Uh, are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, so looking backwards, Gentiles who weren't under the law of Moses wasn't given to them. When you read it, it's, it's continually to Israel, to Israel, to Israel. Do by nature the things contained in the law. These, having not the law, are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the, my gospel. Point being, Gentiles, even not being taught the law, knew right from wrong in many ways. Now, they weren't under all the feasts and sacrifices and everything that the nation of Israel had to do. And thankfully, in Christ, we're not either. You know, it's wonderful. We're under, like we read in James 2 and verse 12, we're under the perfect law of liberty. Same thing is stated in James 1.25, the law of freedom, the law of Christ. Galatians 6 and verse 2, it's not a law of bondage. It's not... A, a law that is burdensome or grievous, 1 John 5, 2 and 3. Well, under the law of Moses, the Jews had a heavy burden to carry. Again, we, we don't have that in Christ. Be thankful that you're alive uh, today. But, but when we're reading there in Romans 2, 9 through 16, the Gentiles, without being taught, thou shall not kill, they knew murder was wrong. They knew murder was wrong. When Cain slew Abel, he didn't have to be taught that was wrong. He knew. You, I, everybody in the world has a conscience, and we, as God's creation, know some things naturally. So the Gentiles weren't forgotten about. They were a law unto themselves. The Jews were selected because of the promise made to their forefathers and separated so that Christ come to the world we know that he came to the world through the tribe of Judah, as promised in Genesis chapter 50, and we read that in Hebrews 7 and verse 14. God is fair. He was fair all along. It's, it's about what you do, like we read there in Romans 9, or Romans 2, 9 through 16. He is not a respecter of persons. It's not the hearer, but the doer. That's the key. He's fair. He's just. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, speaking of God, he is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. He doesn't set anybody up for failure, nor unfairly for success. The standard is set. Jesus said in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Jesus himself, 
In Hebrews 5, 8, 9, the context talking about him being the high priest going back through to into chapter 4, says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and he being made perfect, he became the author or the source of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. God doesn't want people to perish. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, who have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, context talking about people who were thinking the judgment day was never going to come, Jesus is never going to return. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. John, you know, the book of 1 John, we're studying that here in, in El Paso uh, right now. <laughs> we're, we're in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. Oh, boy, I did a boneheaded thing. Um, I taught 1 John 2 and verse 11 last Sunday. And then this Sunday, I forgot that we talked about it the last Sunday and spent 90 minutes talking about it again. We took it from a different direction, and I know that caused some of my brethren to be confused. Some of them thought, well, maybe he's revisiting it uh, to cover this from a different angle. I wasn't. I planned on talking about it for about 10 minutes and then moving on to verse 12, but then we had comments that took us different directions. It's beautiful. I wish everybody, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not here in El Paso, I wish you could be here. Our Bible classes. We just have great discussion, and we go through so many different verses. Um, if you look at the notes that I post on the website, wordsoftruth.net, if you look at what I put up on 1 John 2.11, I think I've got three scripture references. We had to go over 50 or so uh, yesterday and a lot of discussion uh, about preferring, not preferring our brethren and brotherly love and applications of brotherly love. It was great. Anyway, to come back to point here before I teach 1 John 2.11 for the next 90 minutes again. Uh, in this great epistle, I love this epistle. I, every time I'm studying anything, I don't know about you, but I love whatever I'm studying. It's just great. 1 John 4.14 says, We have seen and do testify the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Isn't that great? Not just a select few people. God wants everybody to be saved. And you know something else? I love that this could be a whole podcast in itself. Uh, but when you look at different things, like Matthew 25, 14 through 30 is the parable of the talents. I, man, I, sometimes it's hard to, to just not take off and go in all kinds of different directions in these podcasts. Uh, I can't even imagine if... Whoever you are listening to this, if we were all sitting together, we'd be having some great conversations. We, we might go on for hours and hours on these subject matters. But back, but back to what I'm talking about, um, how God is just so fair. It doesn't take a genius to know that there are different people with different abilities. There are some people that are just more capable than others. Some people that just have a different mental capacity than others. You, you want to know something that's wonderful about God? He doesn't expect the same out of everybody. He only expects what you individually are capable of in accordance to His Word. I, I, I love this. Think about this parable, because it's in the context of the judgment. The parable of the talents is in the context of the judgment. In Matthew 25, uh, beginning of verse 14, says, the kingdom of heaven is a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered them his goods. Unto what he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to every man according to his several ability. 
and straightway took his journey. So listen to this principle. God gives his word, but the expectation for you to obey is based on what you're capable of. In verse 16, says, He that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. Likewise, he had received two. He also gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I gain beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. And there I will end the joy of the Lord. He also has received two talents, came and said, Lord, thou deliverest me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thou art a hard man, reaping while thou hast not sown and gathering while thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, Thou hast that is thine. The Lord answered and said, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gathereth where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore had to put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it him that hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given and shall have an abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant in outer darkness, there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, he, he gave every man according to his ability. This is a parable, right? And it's to illustrate the judgment. Gave every man according to his ability, expected them just to do what they're capable of. But the one talent, the one that was given one talent, given the least, expected of the least, did nothing. And he was cast out because of it. In the book of Luke, there's a parallel to it, a little uh, different wording uh, that is, is giving, given as well, Luke 12, 35 and following. And as you read through that context, again, it's, a, it's just a parable. It's not describing the judgment day, but giving principles by which we can understand. He says in Luke 12, 47 and 48, that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, should be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For un, un, whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him will they ask the more. So to those more capable, more able, there's more expectations. To those less capable, less able, less expectations. Folks, our God is so fair. When you think back to, uh, I don't know what the current uh, school testing is. Uh, Katrina and I, we homeschooled uh, our three children. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, I haven't taken standardized testings uh, in, in school or been familiar with them since the, the, the early 1990s. Uh, but back then... The standardized testing, there were people that, that were genuinely smart, but they failed in the test for different reasons. Just the wording of questions, the time limits given, all these different things. And their test scores really did not fairly reflect 
their level of education. Nonetheless, everybody in the school was given the same test and graded on the same scale. God doesn't do that. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? It is a shame that people don't know this and that they don't use this principle in everything that they talk about as it relates to the faith. It would help so many things and so many people if they could just appreciate what we're talking about today. God does not accept any man's person. In Galatians 2.6, uh, after Paul had dealt with some, some men that wanted to spy out their liberty regarding circumcision, he says, But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference, adding, added nothing to me. God accepteth no man's persons. When the presidents and kings and governors and senators and whatever stand before God in the judgment day, God's not going to say, you were a great leader among men, enter thou in. They're going to be judged the same way as the per person who is homeless, not by choice. You know, there are people that are homeless by choice. I'm, I'm speaking of people... That, that are just poor, that the world might say are down on their luck, right? There's not going to be a respected person. God's not going to say, well, I've I reserved these special places in heaven for the chiefest among men, the greatest warriors, the most wealthiest, and then I've given these lower places in heaven to, no, no, no respect of persons. You'd be judged based on what you're capable of, and what you've done with what you're capable of. That is the key to this lesson. I hope that has been edifying to you to think about the things that we've presented in this lesson. That has alleviated fear. That has taken away anxiety. That has given you hope. Maybe it's led you to questions because of the biases that this world has or because of the false doctrines that are out there. Call me up. My phone number is 915-525-5794. I'll study with you. If you're anywhere near El Paso, Texas, which is where I reside, I'll take advantage of, of meeting me in person. We sit down, open the Bible. You can tell me what you want to talk about when we meet face-to-face. -face. If, you, if you'd rather email, my email is brian at wordsoftruth.net. Visit my website, www.wordsoftruth.net. There's all kinds of information there. You know, I was talking about the church in Thessalonica. Right now, I'm in the midst of writing a series of articles on the uh, le first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, you can click on articles, and you can look at the recent articles. Go back and start in chapter 1 and verse 1 and read forward. Start in the introduction article and read forward. We go verse by verse uh, through this epistle be helpful to you in your studies of God's Word and talk about some of the things that we've talked about here in this lesson. But don't be lost. Help is available for free. No charge. No desire to gain from you physically, carnally in any way. I'll help you. You can test. You know, uh, sometimes there are men that claim to be teachers of the gospel and that they don't want to be questioned. Well, you know, the Bible teaches you to question to test, to prove 
all things hold fast to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. If you're studying with me, I expect you to push back, to challenge, to test. And we'll look at God's word. Even, even if it means we got to back up and start at verse 1, chapter 1 of, of a letter so that we can get the whole context. I'm willing to spend hours studying the Bible with you, not minutes, not quick answers. Uh, I won't, won't talk to you and say, you know, here, hurry up. I got other things to do. There's nothing more important to me than helping somebody that is lost prepare to meet our Lord. I thank you so much for listening. I hope this won't be the first, or I hope it's not the first. Now, if it is, I hope it won't be the last time that you listen to this podcast. But, but I really, really, uh, podcasts are, are great. I love teaching them. I love doing them. But individual study, nothing to be compared to. Individual study gives you the opportunity for us to look at the scriptures for what you need to know, not just a lesson that's broad, but specific to your questions, your needs, and how they might be answered. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much for listening. The next podcast uh, should be coming out on Sunday. Uh, we'll be talking about some interesting things uh, about uh, two congregations in Revelation chapter 2. Hope you'll tune in and listen. Thank you.